Over the past few decades, India has undergone a number of major transformations, both economic and social. But the country is also poised to become not only the world's leading consumer, but also the leading creator and commercial developer of genetically modified plants. This process is moving forward with the full support of many major U.S. agribusinesses and the U.S. government. And we are joined now by Mira Kamdar, Senior Fellow at the World Policy Institute and Associate Fellow at the Asia Society. She's also the author of Planet India. Welcome back to our show for today's underreported segment. I'm really delighted to be here, Leonard. President Obama visited India last month. Was agriculture high on his agenda during the trip? Absolutely was, though you wouldn't really know it from the coverage. He um, inaugurated on one of his first days in India a food and agriculture center of excellence, which is co-sponsored by USAID and the Confederation of Indian Industry. Was he accompanied by people from major agribusinesses? Because there were a lot of American CEOs on that trip with him. Yeah, 215 business leaders, and there were definitely agriculture heavies with him, including the Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, and the head of USAID, Rajiv Shah. You write that, I'm quoting, the U.S. has made the acceptance of genetically modified organisms marketed by Monsanto an integral part of its foreign policy. Why? Well, uh, I think there are two reasons. First of all, and, you know, if you go to USAID's website and look at their uh, food future program, this is what they say. They say, on the one hand, because of global warming and population increase, it's getting harder and harder to feed everybody on the planet. And the only way to address this problem, we believe, is biotechnology. And on the other hand, we need new markets. We need new markets for this stuff. And uh, American agribusiness giants are, you know, a big part of of our economy. And then the third element, which they don't say on the USAID website, but the, uh, you can read on uh, you know, military reports and things, is the, uh, is the fact that food security has become part of a whole national security equation. This is actually something that came up during these recent uh, leaks by WikiLeaks of diplomatic cables, which showed that the State Department officials were asking about government acceptance of genetically modified food and propagation of genetically modified crops in Africa. That's right. And uh, in his remarks to India's parliament, President Obama uh, specifically mentioned that part of the new uh, collaboration between India and the United States on agriculture would be to focus that on Africa. Now, are these the same genetically modified organisms uh, that uh, are being introduced into the United States? is really dominated by, you know, really big grain and, you know, soy. I mean, it's corn, especially, you know, corn for corn syrup and all the other, all the thousands of products that are made out of corn now uh, and uh, soy are the two main pro- uh, crops in the United States. But there's all kinds of stuff in the pipeline. We have uh, genetically modified papayas that are being uh, developed in uh, Hawaii. Uh, but India is really where there's a focus by USAID uh, working with Cornell University of the United States and with Indian universities to roll out a whole series of food crops, vegetables, fruits that would be genetically modified. We mentioned Monsanto. What other U.S. agribusinesses currently have interests or projects or designs in India? not specifically focused on the genetically modified side, but focused on agribusiness and what's called farm-to-fork, vertical integration, where a single company controls the product from the, the seed to, you know, when it hits the consumer's plate, is Walmart. 
and Archer Daniels Midlands, um, and together with Monsanto, those three companies actually sit on the board of something called the U.S.-India Agricultural Knowledge Initiative. Now, is India a better place for them to go than China? Well, it's better in the sense that um, one of the things that has been built into what's being called a second green revolution for India, remember we helped India with the first green revolution uh, several decades back, is uh, room for the private sector. This would be a little harder to control and protect, I think, in the Chinese context. Now, the the, the first one we're talking about were was the, the the, the thing that was engineered to some degree by Nobel laureate Norman Borlaug's dwarf wheat and, right. and things like that, the Green That's Revolution. Right. That's right, and rolled out by the Rockefeller Foundation and things. Um, but, you know, the Green Revolution, and that's a whole big topic of discussion in terms of its aftermath and, and, and what it did accomplish, and, and it, did, it did result in dramatically uh, boosted yields, but, um, but it remained, all of that remained in the, in the public uh, domain. Uh, you had land-grant universities and, and you know, uh, diffusing the knowledge and developing the seeds. The big change here and in this new collaboration with India and the United States in the second Green Revolution is that whatever is developed, is going to remain in the private domain. Well, last year there was a major controversy in India over a genetically modified eggplant that was developed by a subsidiary of Monsanto. What was unique about the vegetable and what was the source of the controversy? Well, the, what was unique about it was it was the first genetically engineered vegetable for human consumption. Um, there also was fairly weak argument by, about why it was necessary, um, because India doesn't have a shortage of eggplants. Uh, then there was also concern by this, what turned out to be a mass public movement uh, uh, fueled by a lot of civil society groups and farmers groups against this, uh, this new eggplant being rolled out, is that, you know, there are hundreds Hundreds of different varieties of eggplants in India, and there's a whole native, uh, you know, plant diversity stock there that that people felt was being threatened. So, uh, it was really was this a farmers' revolt, or was this a consumer revolt? combination of farmers and, uh, you know, the same kind of organizations that, that we have in the United States that focus on, uh, you know, say, organic, protecting local uh, producers, locavores, slow food, organic. You have the same kind of groups in India. It was those kind of groups uh, as well as farmers who were concerned that it would be much more expensive for them to grow these uh, eggplants as it has been more expensive for them to grow uh, genetically modified cotton, which is by far the biggest. Uh, GMO crop in India. What happened with the eggplants? What was the ultimate result of that controversy? It was quite extraordinary. The Minister of Environment and Forests, Jairam Ramesh, declared an, a moratorium on the commercial rollout of this crop. And it was done in this extraordinary way where he published on the ministry's website, uh, you know, the, the text of letters that he had received from scientists around the world and activists around the world, uh, the reports that he had received. He did a tour of the country and listened to citizens' groups and did, you know, the equivalent of town hall meetings. And he published all of this, and he said, my conclusion is, there's no uh, real argument to bring this out now, and we need to make sure this is safe before we put this in people's plates. My guest is uh, Mira Kamdar. We're talking about Indian agriculture and U.S. agribusiness on today's underreported segment. This is WNYC, WNYC.org. I'm Ludwig Lopate, 
As you pointed out, India is one of the largest producers of genetically modified cotton. Has that been embraced by most of its cotton farmers? Well, it's the big cotton farmers, which are the minority of farmers in India. More than 80% of India's farmers um, you know, farm less than five acres and half of them less than two acres of land. So the big farmers are in the, in the real minority. And the big farmers have done very well with it, especially in a, a state called Gujarat, uh, where they have access to irrigation, where they have access to chemical fertilizers, and where they have enough money to, to, to throw that stuff at their crops. They've done very well with it. The problem is in a country like India, you have so many small farmers, and the small farmers have not done as well with it. And there's actually been an epidemic of farmer suicides in India. I mean, more than 150,000 Indian farmers have killed themselves in the last 10 years. And many of those suicides have been linked to them going into debt, trying to, you know, as a, as a, as a guy with a, with a plow and an ox and two acres, do what uh, a huge farmer in the American Midwest would do with a bunch of machines and thousands of acres. Does the government, the Indian government, provide subsidies for its farmers, like the U.S.? It has really uh, been in a state of flux with the liberalization of India's economy. It used to to provide price supports. It still provides subsidies for fertilizer. It still provides uh, some support for irrigation. But then again, that tends to go to the big farmers. Most of India's agriculture is rain-fed, and that's becoming more erratic with climate change. But it has withdrawn the price supports for the crops at the end and, and at the, you know, when the farmers go to sell their crops. They used to have a guaranteed price. They no longer do. And so as their input costs have gone up, and they're now, you know, in this open market where they have to compete, again, as mostly small producers, with the big guys and, of course, with our big farmers who are magnificently subsidized. Much of Pakistan's cotton crop was wiped out by flooding this year, and that caused spikes in prices. Is Pakistan similarly reliant on GM cotton? Honestly, Leonard, I, I honestly don't know. I can't honestly answer that. Um, I would not be surprised, but I honestly don't know. What other GM food crops are in development or slated to be rolled out in India? Oh, they're getting ready to roll out bananas, papayas, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of things, really. Uh, the, I think the goal is to really make every single thing that, that, uh, that people can eat, uh, you know, be a patented, genetically modified product. On the other hand, something like 40% of the world's uh, malnourished children live in India. So can a case be made that GM food might help alleviate the problem? Well, you know what? The problem is is that nobody's really been able to, to refute the basic truth that all of the malnutrition and starvation that we see around the world is not about a lack of a total amount of global food. It's about a lack of access to the food. And this is true in India as well. It's not a question that of, a, of a lack of, of food. There's, it's not that there's not enough food. It's that the people who are hungry don't have access to the food because they can't afford to buy it. Last April, in a piece that appeared in Le Monde Diplomatique, you wrote that India is applying to its agricultural sector the same model for the outsourcing of business services, accounting, call centers, computing, that has driven its economic growth. So uh, what we're talking about here is India as, as a place where uh, Americans can test out things? 
exactly that's exactly what we're talking about uh, within the framework of the U.S. India Agricultural Knowledge Agreement. Uh, basically, the private sector will fund research the way they do at land grant universities in the United States for agriculture, by the way. Uh, but they'll bring Indian scientists uh, to the U.S. to work on developing some of these products. They'll also, uh, you know, Monsanto's busy signing on an individual basis uh, memoranda of understanding with a, a whole series of, of agricultural universities in India right now. He, they just signed a big one with in Rajasthan um, to develop these crops. So you get Indian scientists, uh, you know, they have a nice reputation well for being quite brainy on these kinds of things, working on developing these, these products. Uh, but because the, the work has been paid for by these private sector companies, the patents uh, and things will belong to them, and then they will be uh, responsible for the commercial rollout of the products. But what does the patent actually mean to farmers? Um, I understand uh, a, a big uh, farmer uh, making some deal with Monsanto or Cargill or whatever, but for small farmers, can they be sued for growing uh, a patented uh, GM without a license? Well, I mean, certainly that has uh, been the case in the United States and in Canada, where there have been a number of instances of farmers being, I mean, in Canada, there's that famous case where the, the, the seeds blew over from the neighbor's farm and the guy was still sued and he had to go all the way up to the Supreme Court. But um, uh, in theory, they could. Of course, in the Indian context, where you're talking about 65% of the population dependent on agriculture in a country of 1.2 billion people and all these small farmers, it would be much more difficult to enforce at this time. But then, you know, you also have in these seeds the terminator technology, where the seeds are sterile, uh, you know, from the plant. So the farmer can't save seeds from one year to the next and has to go back and buy them every year. And at a certain point, and this is what's happened with the genetically modified cotton in India, has to pay whatever price is asked of him because he has nowhere else to go. Many of the Himalayan glaciers are are melting and climate change may alter what the monsoon season looks like. Won't both of those things have major implications for the Indian agricultural industry? Absolutely major indications uh, in a report on agriculture and climate change that was published a couple of years ago. Uh, it was uh, suggested that Indian agriculture could decline by 38% over current levels between now and 2080. And that's during the same period of time when India is going to add more than 400 million more people to its population. It's not looking good. The International Food Research Policy Institute issued uh, a, a statement yesterday yesterday or the day before yesterday in Cancun, you know, whether the climate meeting is going on, saying that, that uh, they are projecting that food prices worldwide will double by 2050 as a result of climate change alone. So there are real, real challenges out there. But is, uh, you know, is the only solution to have monopoly agribusiness corporations like Monsanto, um, you know, uh, solve the problem with patented seeds and, and to put industrial agriculture uh, everywhere in the world where it doesn't yet exist. There are a lot of scientists and agricultural experts who say, no, that's not the answer. Well, in the past, the United States sent its food surpluses to other countries as food aid. It was considered a tool of our foreign policy during the Cold War. Is this the new approach now that the Cold War is over? It 
absolutely is the new approach. In fact, if you go back to the national security uh, statement, the big rollout statement made by the Obama administration um, uh, earlier uh, in 2010, earlier this year, uh, they have put the State Department diplomacy back front and center, and and under its its uh, uh, auspices, agriculture is right up there, as and with health as the two areas where American diplomacy is going to work not only to alleviate hunger and therefore presumably take away some of the causes of international tension, uh, but also to, and this is explicitly stated by USCID everywhere, create new markets. Well, five years ago, President Bush and Prime Minister Manmohan Singh signed the India-U.S. Agriculture Knowledge Agreement. That was the same year that the two countries signed a nuclear cooperation agreement. But you argue that this agriculture initiative is just as important. But I'm wondering also whether they're in some they're linked in some ways. Well, they're they're linked in the sense that uh, it they are both uh, uh, the argument for both with regard to the Indians is we are here to boost you to give you a boost a leg up to becoming a major power. Um, we're going to help you meet your energy needs by, uh, uh, you know, letting you get uh, access to fuel and, and uh, equipment to build up your nuclear power um, uh, sector. And we're also going to turn you into a major hub for agricultural knowledge and power. And this is actually some of the language that was in the press releases around the inauguration of this Center for Food and Agricultural Excellence that President Obama inaugurated while he was in India. Were U.S. companies on the board that was created by the earlier agreement with President Bush? Yes, it was. It's just this agreement remains in effect, that agreement that was created with President Bush. And it, the three U.S. companies on the board are Monsanto, Archer Daniels Midland, you know, supermarket to the world, and uh, Walmart. And what is Walmart going to be doing there? I'm, uh, I'm not Walmart exactly, already- I mean, other than opening stores? No, Walmart. No, Walmart has not been able to open any stores yet, though. That's uh, something that the U.S. keeps negotiating with India to let let us let uh, happen. Uh, but they are already sourcing a lot of products in India. I mean, not uh, just food products, but in the in the realm of food products, um, they're sourcing a lot of spices. They're sourcing a lot of things, and they're really setting the groundwork already, so that when they are allowed to move in with big box retail, they'll be able to put this, you know, farm-to-fork model of a vertically integrated, um, uh, you know, seamless uh, 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 path from the producer to the plate. How how much of this do you think is driven by concerns about China? Um, I'm not sure any of it's driven by concerns about China. I think it's really more driven by market opportunity. I mean, India represents this huge potential consumer market. India is a huge, um, hugely productive agricultural country. It always has been. Yet its agriculture is, quote-unquote, undeveloped in the sense that it's, you know, you have 65% of the people engaged in agriculture with these tiny plots of land versus the United States, where we only have 2% of people engaged in agriculture. And so it's just represents a massive opportunity for agribusiness. And then you couple with that the outsourcing model and bringing in the Indian scientific expertise and then spinning that out to Africa, spinning that out to other parts of the world. And it's just a huge opportunity. Aren't Indian companies uh, leasing large tracts of land in Africa? They 
are leasing large tracts of land in Africa, and Indian companies are right in on this. Uh, should we, I, I shouldn't give the impression that only U.S. companies are, are in there. All the big Indian uh, agribusiness companies are involved, in whether it's Tata, whether it's Mahindra Mahindra, all of them, and they're, and they're very excited about this initiative. In fact, uh, at that inaugural ceremony for the Center on Agriculture Excellence, there were a number of uh, big Indian agricultural companies that exhibited what they were up to to the president. The reason I brought up China is uh, China is also going into Africa in a big way. Uh, in yes. their case, in a quest for rare earth metals and other minerals in Africa, are we seeing something similar with Indian agriculture? Um, yeah, I mean that's actually an interesting an interesting perspective uh, to kind of compete with to go head to head with China because China is also going into agriculture there as is Saudi Arabia and a lot of other countries um, on that front. But I, I also think that from India's point of view, it, it's the government of India is saying, "Oh my God." climate change, our population growing, we're already barely doing okay, we are going to need, we're not going to be able to feed ourselves just by ourselves, we're going to need to, you know, get our food from outside, and we are going to want to control that, and here's the U.S., uh, and they're going to help us to do that, and they're going to help us to, um, you know, become a center for the knowledge uh, that will um, be necessary to protect our, our food as a national security interest in the future. Mira Kamdar is a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute and associate fellow at the Asia Society, also the author of Planet India. Thank you so much for talking with us today on Underreported. Thank you, Leonard. 